All right, we'll go ahead and get started tonight. Uh, just a reminder that um, we have to read a couple statistics for the association as well after this, just uh, to pass those because we weren't prepared to do so at the business meeting. So uh, after prayer, we'll have a quick call to church order. We'll have them read those statistics, and then we'll be able to get out of here. So... Um, Thanks for everybody coming tonight, and sorry that I was a little delayed getting the outline here to you. There's a hole punch going around. You shouldn't have to mess with the setting at all on those. Um, Hopefully we can get done with this third chapter. Hopefully you've had a chance to take a look at it. So we'll go ahead and begin reading in Acts chapter 3. Of course, we just came out of the day of Pentecost, and we'll read these first 10 verses. Um, Acts 3 and 4 kind of should be pushed together in one sense. Obviously, I understand why they divided it. It'd be super long otherwise, but the event kind of occurs across two chapters. And so uh, tonight we're going to look at the actual event, which is going to be discussed in chapter four some. And it says this in verse number one, though it says verse three on yours. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. So what time in the day is that, the ninth hour? 3, 3 p.m. So remember, 6, six o'clock starts the, the day, 6 a.m. Nine hours after that, it's 3 p.m. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the, gate, into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. All right, so let's um, just establish a few things that we don't use some words and language today. We want to make sure we know what we're talking about here. So first of all, anybody know what it is to be lame in the Bible? Not like... Lame how we use it today, though he may have been lame that way as well. What, uh, what does it mean to be lame? All right, crippled in some way in the legs, right? So it could, as far as I could understand, mean he's completely paralyzed. It could mean that he had a substantial limp. Um, man that came to mind as I was looking at this, and there's a reason why this guy came to mind, because later in the story, um, we'll talk, maybe talk about it for a moment, Mephibosheth. Jonathan's son, so King Saul. King Saul had a son, Jonathan. Jonathan had a son, Mephibosheth. If you remember in the battle at the end of, I think, 1 Samuel, they were rushing away. The servant grabbed him, dropped him off the horse. He injured himself. And then he's the guy that King David said, you're going to eat at my table all the time. And he says, what am I but a dead dog? Why, Why do you give me this privilege of sitting here at the king's table every time I eat? So, Um, I think that story may become relevant to this here in a minute. But being lame just means you're in some way handicapped, evidently from the waist down. Um, Alms. What are alms in the Bible? 
Anyway? Contribution. Yep, contribution. So it would just be to ask alms, to beg for money, right? So here we have a man. He's at the temple. Now I, I have this on your outline. If you'll go to page number two, you'll see the same picture on your outline. Um, over here. So this is a rough sketch of what the temple looked like or the temple grounds look like. Anybody know what's in that location today? What's that? Yeah, the Dome of the Rock. So this is where the big, this is where all the fighting goes on over this little place right here. Now to give you a sense of how big it is, um, this is a football field right here. So you can see it on your paper. It's all on there. This is the size of a football field that's lined up next to the inner court. And so I would say, what, 150 yards this way-ish, something like that, and probably not quite a full length across, about 100 yards-ish. And so this is the area where the Gentiles were allowed in the Gentile court. We're not going to do a temple lesson here, but I just like the visual, being able to see where they're at and what they're doing. So he's obviously coming here or in one of these locations. The man is sitting right here. So this is the main entrance to the take to the gimple or the temple gate. Yep. Is that the original temple that Solomon built? No, Solomon's temple was destroyed, and this is usually referred to even in the scriptures as Herod's temple, which took what does it say, forty six years or something to build. There's some reference into in the Gospels, um, but this is probably very similar size wise to to Solomon's temple. I, I have to go back and look at that. So he's here. This right here, if you look at number nine, is the woman's courtyard. And so he's in this primary spot to be able to get alms. So a pretty natural thing that you would do um, that we see people do here in Bowling Green. They go to the, the, the intersections where there's, there's stoplights to be able to go there. So hopefully that gives you a little visual to this story and what's transpiring here. Now, on our first bullet point, we just want to point out that Acts 2.43 gives us kind of a preface to what's going to happen here. Because it says, Fear came upon every, every person, every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. This seems to be, hey, many signs and wonders were done. Let us give you a really notable one. Because it's also going to direct John and, and Peter moving forward. This particular miracle is going to have a, an effect on what happens next. So we just point out here, uh, uh, Pentecost was not a one-time, here's a big miracle, everybody better believe because of this. But God, over and over, through the hands of the apostles, reaffirmed this new message that they're preaching by allowing them to perpetually perform miracles. Now, to me, that would be very important. I always think of myself, if you're wanting me to convert from Christianity to Islam or some radically different religion, maybe you pulled a sleight of hand. Maybe you were like Pharaoh's magicians, and you were able to somehow turn that and and do the the, the, um, staff into a snake. Maybe one time. To really make such a... And we talked about this when we talked about John. How much evidence is necessary... It seems like God is very faithful here to say, I'm going to give clear evidence over and over. And so some of these people perhaps have seen the miracles of Jesus. 
as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, if you remember one of the things that we, we saw in John chapter 11, is either 11 or 12, where even as they're walking in, the people are saying, there's Jesus, this is what he did, but look at that guy, that's Lazarus. He was dead. That's happening as they're walking into Jerusalem, that the people which witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, they're pointing at him and Jesus and trying to make this connection. Jesus dies, he rises again, 40 days later, we know all those things happen, and then Pentecost comes, miraculous outpouring of languages, signs and wonders are taking place. So just pointing this out within the narrative, in this place, there's been a crazy two or three months occurring. And that has been done to verify, which all cause us to step back and say, God was devoted to convincing the Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. Like, there's no way. It's not just, well, they didn't believe in his resurrection. We're talking about extensive evidence that continues to be given. And as Peter did at Pentecost, we'll look at here in a moment, there's similarities between his message here and his message at Pentecost. And one of those is his appeal to their experience. All the things they've been witnessing up to this point, and they're still not believing. And I think that's an important point. But I want to say, it seems like Acts 2.43 kind of gives us a, a thesis to what's going to be going on here. Now, I want to ask this question. I haven't thought through it. I wanted to wait here just to hear what you all thought before I really thought through these questions. Remember, it's, it's the temple was at the same time that it was the ground zero for Pentecost. It's also ground zero for all of the people that had plotted against Jesus. All the things that had transpired there to see him die. And there's obviously a big motive in silencing this cause still. And so, from the apostles' vantage point, like they go to the temple and they just keep going back. And there was something about that that just seemed remarkable to me. That, yes, it's ground zero for the miracles, but it's also ground zero for if there's going to be a plot to assassinate you, it's probably going to be centered at the temple. And so, do you make anything of the fact that they're not fearful in going back to the temple? They just keep going back. And if you'll notice in the, in the text, it says, during the hour of prayer... I don't know exactly what that means. There's an answer to that. But it's obviously at a coordinated time where they're all gathering for some sort of, of, of prayer. So do you make anything out of that? Or does that just does it not seem like uh, particularly relevant to you? The fact that they're continuously going back of a place that may pose them some risk. All right. So uh, this man is lame. So they, they begin to come in here for the hour of prayer. It notes the man is lame from birth. Now, uh, I was Sister Mary reached out to me as she was going to be teaching the kids and, and asked a question that had been going through my mind and I had put in this outline um, about the significance of being lame and, and maybe how it relates to this story. So, if you look at the second bullet point, I think the last two full sentences, it starts this diagnosis, fourth to last line. This diagnosis not only affected his ability to work, but also carried a stigma. Animals which were lame were not allowed to be sacrificed to God, Deuteronomy 15.21. Nor were lame men of the tribe of Levi able to serve as priests, 
Leviticus 21.18. This man was not only perceived as useless, but also as a sinner. Now I referenced John 9 there because you remember when they approached the blind man who had been blind from birth, even the disciples asked Jesus, is this man blind because of his sins or because of his parents' sin? And so just pointing out here, there's this, in the, in the Jewish culture, at least to some degree, there's this presupposition that if there is something wrong with you, it's due to sin of some degree. Because of you, your parents. So he's got that stigma. The Levitical tribe, you cannot serve as a priest. Animals can't, if they're lame, be sacrificed to God. So that got me asking myself the question, so were lame people allowed to go into the temple? Um, anybody know the answer to that or, or uh, ever looked at that? So, Sister Mary and I were led to the same scripture text, if I could find it here. I think it's 2 Samuel 8. If you can go there real quick. I think it's 2 Samuel 8. Five eight. Okay, thank you. So Second Samuel five, and I'll just tell you off the bat, I don't understand what's going on here. <laughs> um, Jerusalem is presently <coughs> occupied by a group of people known as the Jebusites. I think in verse six, the Jebusites are trying to insult David, and I think they're saying. We have such a fortified city that even the lame and blind can defend our city from you. And of course, David takes exception to that. He immediately goes in by God's help and he conquers this stronghold. It becomes the city of David. And then verse 8 and 9, 8, 9 and 10, 8, I guess 8, 9, 8, 8 is the primary one here. It says this, And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter, and smiteth the Jebusites, and the lame and the blind, that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So, I don't get the first part of that verse. I think I understand the second part of that verse is saying, this is why they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house of the Lord. So whatever the first part is meaning, the summary of it, the narrator of 2 Samuel is saying, so this is why from this event comes the idea that the lame and the blind cannot enter the house of the Lord. But again, I, I looked at this in the other versions of the Bible and just don't, I have theories, not that it's going to matter too much here. So what I, what Sister Mary said, I think she had read some either commentators or, or she sent me a, a, a link to somebody that said um, they thought, and it seems a reasonable or a, a plausible interpretation here, that the Pharisees or the Sadducees we're going back to this verse to wrongly prevent lame people from coming into the temple. Which meets standard practice of that group, right? Anything they can do or distort to become 
really legalistic, they often did that. And so it seems like what they're doing or what they did was say, lame and blind people are not allowed to come here because David, and I'm summarizing here, cursed them back when he overtook Jerusalem that they would never be able to come into the temple. And Samuel is saying, that's why people can't come in here. Now, interestingly enough, three chapters later, he grants a lame man permanent ability to be at the king's table and eat for free. So it seems a little odd for us to think that David had some bias against lame people whenever he then invites his enemy's grandson, although his best friend's son, to come in and be in the temple there. So a lot of things that play there. I don't know what all that means. In the very end, I guess here's what I take out of the emphasis that we find in Acts here in a moment, is that it's going to seem, it seems to make a big point that he is lifted up and he enters the temple leaping and praising God and rejoicing. And the people, once they get in, he gets in there, they recognize him and they begin to rejoice. Both of those parts makes it seem like to me he had never been allowed to go in the temple before, past the beautiful gate. That was the place he had to stop because of the perversion of the law. So not only is he excited that he's able to be healed, but after being healed, he's now granted presence into the temple. And so that's double the rejoicing and also kind of explains in part, in part, the amazement of the people. This guy's always been out there for his whole life begging. And now he's in here and he's walking. He was healed. And they all begin to rejoice and they go up to Solomon's porch there uh, where Peter's going to preach here in a moment. So throw out a lot at you and don't feel certain about most of it. Um, and it, it's not, it doesn't change the story, but to me it adds a, a different, maybe an extra component to it. Anybody have any thoughts about some of those things? Or have you looked at that? Is there a version you've looked at that seems to give more clarity about 2 Samuel? Anything you want to mention about those, those verses? Anything? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I wonder, I mean, obviously I don't know anything about the, you know, where this uh, version got that information, but mm-hmm. I wonder if that's like, and you may have said something just like, what I'm about to say, and I just wasn't following because I was looking at this. I wonder if it's like, this is what got said at the time it was, you know, written down in Second Samuel, and then it was so misinterpreted. Mm-hmm which I think you said something like that, that they turned it into, well, obviously this has to mean that we can't let handicapped people in the temple. Mm-hmm. It just, I mean, that's possible when it just got turned into something. And that's kind of what I infer from this whole story. And, and I think, um, and I didn't look deep into this part of what Sister Mary sent me, but there is a miracle that Jesus performed when he calls either blind or lame into the temple to heal them and how that was a violation that was looked at by the the temple goers as a violation of that law that they misinterpret 
right here because I couldn't find anywhere else where it says anything about the lame and the blind. Now, I will say this. Um, there's a reason, a good reason, why the lame and blind animals or Levites could not serve that is different from entering into the temple. What would be the primary reason, justifiable reason, why God said if you're a lame or blind Levite, you cannot serve as a priest? Excuse me, a lame or blind lamb cannot be sacrificed. Okay, so primary reason is that it's representative of Christ. The priest, picture of Christ, he was sinless. So we don't want him being maimed and that being an incomplete picture. The same thing about um, the blind, or excuse me, an animal, right? They were sacrificed there. Um, Kenny, you got a question? I'm just confused. About? Well, that's Old Testament. And mm-hmm. then Jesus come along because Jesus said he was, he was against the religious, the people that were doing this. That were doing, the preventing people from coming. Right. Correct. Okay. Yes, that's correct. So, in this case, it's not the Peter and John and these men. It's just the religious establishment that he was rebuking that's saying, you can't do this. So, kind of the meaning behind that is is that, you know, this is what, I mean, because that's a very good point, that Jesus was after the religious. Oh, he went after but he called out the religious because they had these man-made rules mm-hmm. and they were didn't make no sense absolutely they were legalistically it was a form of of keeping control yeah absolutely we can set up these traditions so that we control things so that it's our way and so um jesus came and and i don't think it was as much about even those men being that way as much as it was a primarily a distortion of what god had established that don't give God this blame for all these things. God didn't do this. This is man stuff. Danny? It was the, uh, the prohibition against Levites that were crippled or blind. Uh, was it part of the law the same way as not sacrificing the blemish? Correct. Okay, so that was, that was correct. Correct. Was their prohibition against blind and lame people coming into the temple. Into the temple, yep. That was a miss. That was probably a perversion of Second Samuel eight. It, it, I mean, or five. They were known for perverting the law for their own convenience and mm-hmm. their own biases and everything. Do you think it was that? Mm-hmm. Okay. I do. I just want to make sure you all know that's that's not super clear. We're inferring this. Some of these things. It seems very plausible, but it's not explicit in the text that he was not allowed in. We're reading that into the text, but it seems based upon this. Story and in, in, in 2 Samuel, it seems like a plausible thing to say. Um, now I want to hit this real quick, and because I, I don't think anybody here is going to be taken by this, but um, rather than give the so this is the last bullet point on the first page. Rather than give the man food or money, Peter uses the man's plight to magnify Jesus. Peter heals the man in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. False religious miracle workers today often make statements like this as if the mantra contains magical power. It doesn't. Peter didn't say this to conjure up power, but to assign credit. Okay, so when I was a kid, Benny Hinn would be on TV, a little Indian guy that go off healing everybody, you know, and very theatrical. And 
You know, my favorite was whenever there'd be a crowd of people standing up and he would like whirl around and everybody would fall down real quick like dominoes. Um, that's a personal favorite miracle of mine, but uh, I'm sure you have your own. And, and a lot of times, you know, he would say this exact phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed or, or whatever. And, and then people wouldn't be, or they'd claim to be healed of some invisible ailment. And, but people acted like, you know, there's some power in the phrase, in the way of saying this or whatever. And, you know, what we notice about Peter here is that he is, this miracle is done and he is emphasizing, I don't get any credit from the way he even does the miracle by not just saying, man, rise up and walk, right? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus said, rise up. And walk. Peter doesn't just say that. Peter says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Or in other words, it's through his power this is being done. And then when the people try to credit him later, he says, uh, if you look at the bold at the very end of the page, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though on our own, by our own power of holiness we made this man to walk? We didn't do this. We said it was in the name of Jesus Christ, and now you're looking on us like we're some miracle power, have some personal power. We don't. He did it. And he's trying to give credit there. And so I wanted to passively mention that because um, I think people sometimes do the same thing to a lesser degree with the way they pray, that there's some formulaic, you know, you've got to approach things in this with this style or have these words come out before or after um, no there's no magic in the words that doesn't mean there's not a proper way to address the Lord but there's no magic in the words um, and, and that's just an example here we, we try to give real quick it says um, Peter defers the attention for healing the man and he uses these good works to glorify Jesus Christ a good lesson for our work today so if people ever credit us, you know, that, and it's obviously they don't credit us with being miracle workers, but sometimes people will praise our righteous works. You know, you're such a good person. You're such a religious person. And it's always kind of a funny compliment to me as if I knew the way of righteousness. Like, I don't know the way of righteousness unless God had showed it to me. I mean, for me to try to grasp, for, I mean, much of the hardship in the Christian life is not just determining what's right and wrong, but what is best and better, right? What's the best thing to do in this situation? And it requires God's wisdom and his knowledge. So even if I am walking in the way of righteousness, I wouldn't know the way unless God paved the way. I I wouldn't have the ability to walk it unless God helped me to stay on the path. And when I deviate, praise God, He rebukes me and helps me get back on the path. And so, again, a little bit of a parallel there um, for us to see. Let's keep going here because we got, got, I want to get through all this tonight if we can. After the man was healed, why did he rejoice so enthusiastically? For a couple reasons. First, he had never walked steadily a day in his life. How exciting it must have been to stand up and walk. 
Secondly, he was able to enter the temple for the first time. We've already talked about this one, so I'm going to skip that scripture verse in 2 Samuel. The man rejoiced because his whole life he was unable to enter the temple, but now he was clean and thus permitted into the fellowship. What spiritual picture exists in this example? Well, I can think of one in my own life whenever I was lost and excluded from the spiritual temple of God's people. And then when God saved me, there was a double blessing. Not only was I saved, but now I had an understanding and an ability to be grafted into God's temple. I had a right to enter. Or in Ephesians 2 or 3, like that's one of the beautiful things if you go over to Ephesians 2, and it's a very subtle language usage, but it's all, it's all referencing temple entrance. That at one time the Gentiles were not permitted, but now they're granted access and entrance in. The Gentiles were. And so this man has got a double blessing. His body is healed, and now I can enter into the fellowship of God's people. As is the case when somebody's saved. We don't keep people out of the membership of the church for any um, sanctimonious reason like these you know, Jewish leaders did. We do it for their own welfare. Of Listen, we don't want you to think that you have access to come into the place of God unless you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And once you have, not only can you enter in the women's courtyard, we can go into the Holy of Holies. And we don't have to close our eyes when we do. We have full access to God. And so again, just a little bit of a spiritual picture here that I wanted to bring out that I found I never noticed before and found encouraging. Let's read the, uh, the, next, the, the rest of the chapter here, verses 11 through 26. Anybody have any comments about that before we move on? All right. So this is verses 11 through 26. And this is the kind of response to some of these things. It says this, And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. So again, this is where it's moving from. So evidently, he's begging here, he's healed right here. He comes in, and somewhere here, there is a lot of rejoicing that begins to take place. And people begin to recognize him. And... You know, just my own mind saying, well, if they went here, then they probably went through here. And I can just imagine people saying, I've seen you right here for 30 years. And you don't have to go there anymore. You know, just what exuberance they all would have had saying, you were just here an hour ago. And now you're not. And then they finally make their way here. Presumably, there's a courtyard of people here. right? Or they had come up here on what appears to be like a wall or a walkway, and Solomon begins his, his sermon uh, right here. And this is what he says. You men of Israel, why marvel you at this, or why look you so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. Now, I want to pause there for a moment because I'll miss this just in the mix of things. 
you, you that were here for our study on the book of John, remember when we were kind of debating a little bit or trying to figure out Pilate's attitude towards Jesus? We were trying to look into, like, was he more merciful? Was he, what was his attitude towards Jesus? To me, this is a little evidence on the side of him being sympathetic because it says, Peter says, Pilate was determined to let him go. Right? So when I read that, I went back to our study. I thought, wow, that's fascinating. It kind of helps us to read the intent of Pilate a little bit. Those questions, so if you go back to John and you read Pilate's words, recognize the angle of those words is, I'm trying to let him go. So kind of put that into your wheelhouse as you begin to read, when you go back and read about Pilate. When he was determined to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God had raised from the dead, hath raised from the dead, excuse me, whereof we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before has showed by the mouth of all of his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people." Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God hath raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from, the, from his iniquities. And that last verse is such a good verse. I'm going to read that again. Unto you first God having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Now, for all of those of you that want to um, dog on the doctrine of Calvinism, every one of you, he sent him to turn every one of you. The intent of God was not for the elect, it was for every one of you to be turned despite the fact that they wouldn't. Some of them wouldn't. So, let's kind of look at a few things here. Um, so, he addresses in the same fashion as he did in the day of Pentecost, you men of Israel. So, it seems again likely, speaking to Jews, or that's the primary place where his words are directed. There are a few similarities between Peter's sermon. Um, we talked about last time, Notice how direct he is. He keeps saying, and I bolded the words in the outline, you did this. And he, he, he charges them with that. And then he even mounts stronger evidence for their rebellion when he says, you, a pilot wanted to let him go. He was determined to let him go. You wouldn't let him. 
You had a murderer that could have come, Barabbas. And you still didn't want to do it. And then I, I love how, and then he says in verse 14, you denied. And then I, I love the way that he, what he calls Jesus. He didn't just say Jesus. He says, the Holy One, the just, the Prince of Life. Um, I just love how when people describe Jesus, just how slightly different fragrance that it gives about who he was. And this is certainly one of those cases, uh, to me at least. Um, He appeals to their own experience. You did this. Here's what, and he does that throughout the sermon like he did in the day of Pentecost we talked about. Um, Notice, since he's speaking to Jews... What does he use to convince a Jew? The Old Testament. And to me, this is where Peter pours it on about as thick as he possibly can. Where he's saying, all the prophets. That's a big statement. It's one thing if I say, well, there was one guy, and I've, I wouldn't say this, but I've twisted his words to make it mean this. That Jesus is the Messiah. But he's just, he's so confident in what the Old Testament foreshadowed Christ, that he just says, every prophet, Jesus used the words from Abel to Zechariah, all the prophets testified of his death. And to me, that would be a terrifying thing if if you have a, a big book and... And in that big book, you're saying, you know, well, this, this verse doesn't mean this. And somebody's like, well, maybe not, but every verse in the Bible means that. You'd be like, whoa, it, it scares you, right? If you're insisting on trying to pick apart and cut apart little things to disprove points, and somebody's saying, no, all of it, makes it leads to him. And... That's what he does. He, he calls out and he says, and, and then he does something. And if you're a Bible student who's, who's curious about the Old Testament prophets being used, a major prophecy that was focused on by Jews then and Jews now is Deuteronomy 18.15. Because remember, what, what Jews then and now are looking for is a figure, a person. They don't know exactly what he's going to look like. They don't know, but there's this description of him. And some descriptions are a little vague in the Old Testament, and some are very pronounced. One of the most pronounced one is Deuteronomy 18.15. And Deuteronomy 18.15 is where Moses is speaking, and it's kind of his exit out of leading the children of Israel. And he says, there's going to be a prophet like me that's going to arise among you. Now, like Moses. I think, I think there's a specific meaning to that. It's not just random facts about Moses that apply to Jesus. What do you think specifically about Moses, Jesus was like? Because there's a description in the Old Testament of Moses. There's a way that he's described. And very few prophets ever meet or leaders of God's people meet this exact description. Jesus certainly does. Mighty in word and in deed. He was a man, mighty in word and in deed. And what that means is this. 
Most prophets in the Old Testament, when they were called by God, were mighty in one or the other. They were men of a lot of works and deeds. So think of Joshua. Right? Joshua comes. He certainly does a whole lot of miracle type things, right? They cross the Jordan on dry ground. He comes in. You got the wall of Jericho. All these things. He's mighty in deed. Actions work. Mighty in word, right? Well, David wrote a whole lot, right? Not that he didn't do some things, but he's really known in scriptures for his words. He wrote all the Psalms. And he, this man was going to come mighty in word and in deed. And if you look through the life of Jesus, that's one of the things that we can see. And, and this is, and I didn't point this out during John. It came to me as I was studying this. Notice, and I think it was very intentional by the gospel writers for this purpose. There are times when people marvel at what Jesus said. And the narrator comments about how they're marveling about his words. And then there's other times where there are are people that are watching the ministry of Jesus and they're commenting about what he's doing. And so the narrative leaves us struck with, oh, he was mighty in word and in deed by the testimony of eyewitnesses. Which to me is so awesome because in this room, some of us, are more directly appealed to by words. That when profound truth is being brought together, it's heart-stirring. Other people are more experiential. They need to witness and see God's movement to produce faith. And so Jesus came perfectly appealing to those who both need to see the alignment of the Old Testament and see how His teachings fulfilled the profound words and prophecies of old. And so some people, I would say like Nicodemus, they're gravitating towards Jesus. Other people, they're awestruck by, how did He do that? And in that sense, I think um, this... Peter's bringing this up. Now, that's another way that you can know as you study the Old Testament what was significant to Jews. And what I mean is this. If the New Testament writers, Peter, John, James, Paul, if they're writing to a primarily Jewish audience and they're really trying to convince that Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah they're going to appeal to the most sacred texts of the Jews and show how that points to Jesus. They're not going to go to obscure ones that the Jews don't look too strongly. No different than in any argument that we would have with anybody. If you can get my base claim, the foundational claims that I'm making, and disprove those, my house collapses. And so the fact that Peter here is appealing to Deuteronomy 18.15 also reveals that the Jews value highly a prophet's going to come mighty in word and deed. He's going to be like Moses. And then he even adds what Moses says onto here, if I can find it real quick, where he says, um, verse 23, And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Like, that to me is a strong kicker. 
If you don't hear this man, even the guy you're idolizing, Moses said, this is going to happen to you. So to me, that appeal to these Jewish people is a powerful, Jewish people is a powerful one. At least, and what I've done myself before in preaching to people who are not so familiar with the scriptures or skeptical of a Christian worldview, is you better soberly think about this. Like, you may not agree with it. You may find some reason to to disbelieve. But if you're wrong, and the Bible is right, it's going to be a long eternity thinking about it. And that's not a joke. And it's not a ploy to get you to try to believe. It is an attempt to say, you need to consider this deeply. And that's what Peter's doing here. Right? And yet he's quoting the very words of the man that they lifted up and worshipped. Moses, to try to, to uh, provoke that response in them. And so, that was another comparison. That went off a little while on a, a rabbit trail. That's another comparison between Acts 2, Acts 3, the sermons are preaching. And I want to bring up one thing that I, I, I appreciate, and that kind of backs something that Danny said last week, or maybe the week before, about the tenor of Peter's message. Right? That in the same way that he is direct and he is appealing personally to them. Notice what he says in verse 17. And now, brethren, I want that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. Like, I love that because it's such a merciful statement. I know you did this out of ignorance. And that spirit must be in us. When you're out in the world and you see people profaning the name of Jesus, ridiculing Christians, persecuting Christians, 99% of the time it's through ignorance. And so I take great exception to the um, pride and presumption of a man to go to a public place and I saw this on a college campus that Kathleen and I went to. We would see this occasionally. In the spring, this preacher would come out on the college campus and he would, I'm not going to call it preaching, he would, he would denounce, he just yell at people. You know, you can be walking by and just, you're a sinner! And, and just beat people down. And, you know, there's like, you don't even know me. And it's, it's obvious you don't want to. And... Here, the, the tone of, of, of Peter, and here's, the, here's what just adds the layer of amazement to me. He just said, you denied the Holy One. You chose a murderer over the Messiah. But I know you did it in ignorance. Like what compassion <clears throat> to charge somebody with murdering the Messiah and then saying, but I know you did it ignorantly. And so did your rulers. Like, remember the rulers were the ones that plotted. And yet still there's room in Peter's heart for compassion. Because in the end, he wants what Christ wants. All to be saved. And if all are ever going to be saved, with the same sharp tool that you use to cut... You must also fill it up with salve, or you must also follow it up with the salve of saying, yes, but 
I'm going to wound you only so that that will provoke you to come for help. And there's times where that's necessary, right? To wound somebody, to get them to stop doing something that's going to lead to more pain. He's saying, I don't want to do this, but here I am to help with the message that can heal. And so I love that whenever he says that, I wish he wouldn't have said, I want that. That's the King James writers, right? I don't know what that means. I want that, right? It's, I know that. It just sounds kind of, I don't know, kind of funny. I felt like I was rapping there for a minute. Um, yeah. um, and then he, he tells them, all your prophets, all the mouth of your prophets have said that he was going to suffer. Jesus fulfilled that. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. And then the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Um, two, two things, and then we'll be done for the night unless you all have something more. Um, he makes two interesting comments here. He says, there's times of refreshing and time of restitution. So he begins to talk about two different topics. Okay? The first one is salvation. Repent, be converted, your sins be forgiven. And then it seems to say, thereby the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Or as a result of repenting and being converted, a time of refreshing will come. That aligns very well with our salvation experiences, doesn't it? You repent, you're forgiven, and in the moment of that, there is a refreshing. That word refreshing in the Greek is a reviving, a life-giving. Um, that's the only time I, I saw that it was used, that exact word in the New Testament. Then he transitions to the end of time. So, this is a very, if you're ever thinking about a way to share the gospel, there's a pattern that's, that's often repeated in the scriptures. Sin is identified in the person. There's sin. There's the message of Christ. Jesus, He's the Messiah. He's the one you have to trust. As a result of those two things, repent. Receive forgiveness. Because there's judgment coming. And that's the last thing he hits on. There is a time of the restitution of all things. And I'm going to read the last um, point of consideration here. But... Imagine the fear, and I've got this in the outline somewhere. Imagine the fear of these people when they go from having crucified Christ to recognizing that He's going to be the judge to restore or restitute all things or make everything right. So I've said this preaching before, and I've never preached on this here. I don't think I've ever preached on this, but I personally believe, and a part of it is because of these verses, that there is a day of vindication coming. Vindication meaning this. There are some times where wrong seems to prevail. Permanently prevail on earth. So maybe somebody committed a crime. They got away with it. The blame got pinned on somebody else. 60 Minutes never does a cover story and undoes all of the stuff. And it's all revealed 100 years later that wasn't true. Everybody dies in that generation. And it is never made right. To me, this, along with other verses, reveal that's not always going to be the case. There is a day of restitution of all things. Now, to me, as on a personal level, this is super sobering about 
my thoughts, the intents of my heart, my actions, my secret attitudes, my secret words behind closed doors. There's coming a day where everything will be righted. Everything will be the way it should be. So if you sit and you have a problem with somebody because you think, I just know behind closed doors they're this way and they're that way and they're this way, and you are are right. And there's this sinful part of us that I just want them to get it stuck to them. I want them to get caught. I want it to be revealed. I want some relationship to be ruined. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That means he is going to be the one responsible for bringing restitution and vengeance fulfillment for whatever occurs. And so Romans 13 teaches us this. Those people may be that way. And there may not be a silver lining to it. And they may never get caught on earth. But give that person that to the Lord, knowing... One day, everything will be made right. Everything will be known. Every truth will be established. I've thought about people who, you know, rot in a jail cell. Guilty of something they never, or or innocent of something they never did, but charged with it. And they rot, and they die. And not even just their life, and what happened in their life, but the shame they bore by being convicted of heinous things. And to me, that would be almost the worst part of it is not only am I in prison, but like you all think that I'm a this or that. Like just how that would hurt. God's going to make it right. And that doesn't just mean he's going to make it right in the sense of like, I think people think that God's vindicating is somehow like a second tier form of judgment or a second tier form of making it right. As if the preferred way is to make it right on earth? No, no, no. If I had it one way or the other, I'd rather have it made right in heaven for all of eternity while all nations and people are present versus vindicating myself down here temporarily by arbiters that are imperfect. Judges who don't even know the thoughts and intents of the heart. Right? So, just this last point of consideration here. The word restitution means the act of returning or restoring to a person something or right of which he has been unjustly deprived. When wrong prevails, when false accusations are never exposed, when truth is ridiculed, when malicious intents are concealed, and when it seems that injustice will prevail, it is vital to remember that a day of restitution is coming. God will reveal the truth. He will vindicate the falsely accused and uncover the truth on the final day of judgment. Do not grow uneasy or restless when the world is wrong. Righteousness will triumph in the end. For those of you that, that, uh, and I have a justice bone in my body, you know, things being unjust just bother me. One brief example um, and if you think this is political, you can, it may be, I don't know. When Brett Kavanaugh was accused the way he was a number of years ago at the Supreme Court, I followed that super closely. I listened to every word he said. I re-listened to every word he said. And it tore me up. Because I 
felt and still feel very strongly, you were maligning an innocent man. And I just, it bothered me for days and weeks. And I almost wanted to send like a condolences card, (laughs) you know, like I took it very personal because I thought, man, like not only did it happen, but it happened for the whole world. History will forever remember the Clarence Thomas case, right? All of you that were around, remember it. And so now people do not remember anything about all the good Clarence Thomas has done. But they sure remember Anita Hill, his false accuser, right? I thought even this case was more extreme, in my opinion. And it just got to me. And I would sometimes in such miscarriages of justice, I would, I would think, like, Lord, why do you let this stuff go on? Only to remember it's temporary. I'll let it go on for a while. But I can't help but believe, this is just a personal opinion, as distorted and wrongly thought of is a man at, the, at this time, God will make sure that it's righted beyond that in the afterlife. Or that you're fully convinced. There's no... You're not going to be at the day of judgment and think, well, that's just not enough evidence. When God vindicates, it's complete. Um, that's just... That last part is my opinion. But I think this is what he's talking about on the day of judgment. There's a day of restitution of all things. And um, I hope we all take a little bit of comfort in that. I think there's some places in Revelation that, uh, that also reveal those things. Um, and then the, the story concludes with him making an appeal to um, probably the most famous or one of the most famous Old Testament talking about how in thy seed shall all the kindreds or all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that being through Jesus, right? That Abraham was going to have an offspring that would be the savior of not just the Jews, but of all mankind. So all kindreds, all nations will be blessed through Abraham's seed, one that comes from him. So that's all I have tonight.